Hey, thanks uh, for tuning in to New Vine Podcast. This week we are continuing our series of song for every season. And we've got a real treat. We've got our own Dave Mack, Dave McPherson, uh, preaching to us from Psalm 51. Dave uh, is now pastoring our Westlakes congregation, uh, which we continue to cheer on. And uh, it's wonderful to have you back here, Dave, as our guest speaking into this. It's a beautiful psalm uh, from King David where, you know, he really expresses some beautiful heart stuff to the Lord that each one of us should uh, grow some strength out of it. So enjoy. Lord, have your way. Speak to us. Well, hi, Newvine. Uh, it's good to be back at the mothership. For those of you who don't know me, my name is David. I was on staff here up until the end of last year and stepped out to uh, take on the role of lead pastor at our newest network church, Newvine Westlakes, that meets normally down at uh, Fasty Fern in the Toronto area. We, of course, are online just as you are, and it's lovely to be back here. It would have been so much better if it could have been face-to-face, but we are where we are, and there is some light at the end of the tunnel. We're speaking from Psalms today, and it's a wonderful series, and I'm delighted to be part of that. I, I love the Psalms. They're part of, they form part of my devotional seasons at uh, many stages in my Christian walk, where I would take, you know, on the first day of the month, read the first Proverbs, so Proverb 1, and the first five Psalms. On the second of the month, Proverbs 2, and then Psalms 6 to 10. And that way, each month, I would get through the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms, amongst other readings that I was doing. And as I look back through my Bible, I see from those different seasons areas where I've highlighted verses and texts that have really jumped off the page and spoken to me for that time. And then I can go through the the same chapter a month later, and yet God speaks to me through different portions of the same chapter. And that's the beauty of God's Word, isn't it? That it's timeless. It allows us to actually hear from God for where we're at right now, right here in 2021 in lockdown. God speaks to us through His Word. And it's like the Psalms have this ability to almost convey every human emotion to us. And we know that we're not longer alone because there are those who've gone before us who've experienced those very same things. I'd like to open in prayer. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Father, I thank you for your word. It's so, so precious and timeless. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through it today. Father, that you would speak to us, uh, that your words would cut us deep, Lord, and would, uh, would bring forth change in us in those areas of life where we need to see change occur. Father, have your way in us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what if I told you that during lockdown, I'd invented a machine that uh, at certain points during the sermon this morning, I could zoom in on you, uh, a picture of you would appear on the screen with your name and address there, and a list of your worst sins. How would that make you feel? It would certainly make me cringe quite a lot. Well, that's kind of what we're looking at today uh, as we look through Psalm 51. And this is one that deals with David, who was king of a nation, and it's very, very open. And unusually, this psalm actually gives an explanation at the start of why it was written. And it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. David has written this psalm to the choir director. This was to be sung by the nation, and it was to be a psalm that quite openly began with the fact that David had committed adultery. So I think what we need to do this morning as we go into this is actually look into where this all stems from. And before we jump into that, I just want to bring up uh, 
1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And Samuel at this point is speaking to Saul, the first king of Israel. And God has just been telling him, Samuel's been telling him that God is tearing the kingdom from him. And he says to Saul that your kingdom must end for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And Samuel here is referring to David, who would be the second king of Israel. So as we have that in mind, let's jump into 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to look at the first three verses, reading from the New Living Translation. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David has sent Joab and the Israelite army out to battle the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, at the time when kings normally go out to battle, where is our king to be found? Not on the battlefield with his army, with his troops, but in his palace. And not just in his palace, we see this, you know, late one evening after, after his midday rest, up he gets, and as he walks on the roof of the palace, sees this beautiful woman having a bath. He sends someone to find out who she is and discovers that she is this woman Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now in these three verses here, we see this rapid descent in David's morals. At the time that kings go out to war, Israel was at war without their king. While his men were fighting on the battlefield, David was lazing around in the palace. And whilst he sent his men to fight his battles, he also sends a man to find out who this woman is. And then in the next verse, he sends more men to bring her to him. We see in David here this dereliction of duty, that laziness leads to lustfulness. And the most extreme abuse of power played out in the pages of God's word, as David takes Bathsheba, another man's wife, and sleeps with her. Bathsheba goes home and then becomes pregnant and sends word to David. The remainder of 2 Samuel chapter 11 then deals with the subsequent events that go on here. David discovers this and is horrified and now will go to extreme lengths to hide his sin, to cover his sin. So he sends a messenger to the battlefield to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite to let me know what's happening in the battle. Joab sends Uriah, Uriah comes to the palace and David opens up this conversation with him saying, how are things going? And he, he explains what's happening in the battle. David then tells him, go home and be with your wife. And David's trying to hatch a plan here where Uriah would go home, lay with his wife, and hopefully then that would allow David to say, it must be Uriah's child, nothing to do with me. Sweep those sins under the carpet. Now, Uriah is this incredible man. He's actually one of David's mighty men. And we see in him, as we read through these passages, his high moral standard. 
David sends him to his house, but Uriah instead goes to the palace gate and stays and remains overnight with the guards. Someone comes and, and shares word with David the following morning that Uriah didn't go home to be with his wife, but slept uh, in the gatehouse with the palace guards. And David called him and says, why did you not go and be with your wife? And then Uriah says, the ark and the armies of my Lord are out in battle. How can I go and eat and drink and lay with my wife? David says to him, stay one more day. And then that evening invites him for dinner again at the palace. And this time gets him drunk in the hope that a drunken Uriah will now go back to his home and lay with his wife. Yet again, however, Uriah goes to the gatehouse, the guardhouse for the palace, and stays there with the palace guards overnight. David, now realizing that he cannot convince Uriah to help be complicit in covering his sin, then sends Uriah back to the battlefield to Joab with a note. And that note is a note to Joab saying, put Uriah where the fighting is most fierce. And then at a suitable time, withdraw from there, leaving Uriah behind so that he might be killed. And that, in effect, is exactly what happens. David sends Uriah, this faithful servant of his, who has done no wrong to him, into, back to the battlefield, carrying the very note that signifies his own death. And he knows that he can trust Uriah to the point where he won't actually open the note to see what is in it. So David's attempt to cover up this litany of sins, each one worse than the last. But the Lord who sees all these things is displeased. Joab does exactly what David has asked him to do. He puts Uriah in at the fiercest point of battle and then withdraws the troops. Uriah is killed. He then sends a report back to David saying what has gone on in the battle and then says, and unfortunately your servant Uriah was killed. And Joab was actually fearful of telling David this. David sends back note to say, don't worry about it. The sword devours whom it will devour. Rise up again tomorrow and take the city. David thinks everything is all taken care of. The pile under the rug, however, just gets higher and higher. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan comes to him. Nathan is the prophet of Israel at this time. And he comes to David and tells David this story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man who has... Uh, huge flocks uh, of sheep and, and cattle. And he has a guest come and he talks about this poor man who has just one lamb, this lamb that he'd raised from birth, that, that was his special lamb. He, he loved this lamb. And when the visitor comes to the rich man, rather than take from his multitude of flocks, he goes to the poor man and takes his single lamb, kills it and serves it to this rich visitor. At this point, David is incensed and says to Joab, this man surely must be put to death and repay fourfold. At which point, Nathan, I imagine in the scene, pointing at David, saying, you are the man. You are the one. You have murdered Uriah the Hittite by the sword. And not just by the sword, but by the sword of Israel's enemies and has stolen his wife. Uriah speaks about it, saying, God has given you everything. He's given you the throne of Israel. He's given you your master's lands and his riches. He's given you wives and concubines. And if that were not enough, he would have given much, much more. And yet you have done this thing which has displeased the Lord. 
and there will be punishment that comes as a result of it. That punishment being that David's family will now live by the sword, that his household will rebel against him, and that the Lord will give David's wives to another man who will sleep with them publicly. What David has done in secret and tried to cover up, the Lord will expose for him openly. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, by doing this, your child will die. So that sets the scene for us. And so to Psalm 51, verses 1 to 3. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. David here confesses his sin, but his, he first appeals to God's mercy. The merciful nature of God. He acknowledges David, his lowliness, and God's superiority and supremacy over his life. He reminds God of his great compassion that is able to purify and cleanse him from the stain of sin, the actions of his wrongdoing. And we see from the text that David is haunted by the consequences of what he has done. And this is really a great description of sin. As it was for David, it can be a slow burn a slow fade for us, a slow process to finally taking that step across the line. See, when sin presents as a bold option for us to choose, we're not likely to fall for that because we see it for what it is. We can easily walk away from that. But sin is often insidious. It's a slow divergence off track where it just knocks us off a little, which at the start can look very similar, but eventually the wider and wider we get, the further we are, away from the track we should be on. Sometimes we take a step on that path, knowing it's the wrong path, but believing, convincing ourselves, I can stop just a few steps down. This isn't going to lead me to sin. I'm just investigating. I'm just interested. I'm curious. But I'm not going to step too far down that route. Somehow convincing ourselves that we can stop our journey on that road. But we don't understand how slippery that path actually is. David's fall here begins with a sin of omission, not doing what he should be doing. And that can often be the first step for us on the slippery slope. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. When we contemplate the evil that David did and the destruction that it caused, it seems almost unfair to say that his sin was only against God. After all, what about Uriah, who's lost his life? What about uh, Bathsheba, who was taken by the king? How could she refuse the ruler of Israel? What about Joab, who was forced to be complicit in this scheme to murder a man who was serving David and serving the Lord? Well, while sin has consequences, it has that collateral damage amongst the human context. Sin is actually a transgression against the law of God. It's rebellion against him. 
God is actually the victim here. He is the one who's cut deep by sin. Sin is costly. Sin leads to death. Something that God our Father knows full well. Verses 7 to 9. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. And the Hebrew text here can also be read as purify me with hyssop. And hyssop features it several times during the, uh, during the Bible. It's a herb that was it's part of the mint family. It's often used for cleansing. So it was used in the cleansing of lepers. It would be used in a household when mold was discovered as part of that cleansing process. Hyssop was the, was the brush, if you will, into which the, uh, was dipped into the blood of the lamb and painted on the lintel and the doorposts of the houses in Egypt that protected Israel from the angel of death. And just as this hyssop is used to remove mold from a house, this black stain, David asks the Lord, purge me with it and remove the stain of my sin from me. You see, sin robs us of our joy and it breaks our spirit. When we sit in sin, we can't see anything but the effect of it in our lives. And the enemy will come in at that point. He will accuse us. He will point to our sin. He will tell us we amount to nothing, that we can never do anything good for God. And we'll listen to those things because we know we have done wrong. We know that we're due for punishment. We have this inbuilt sense of justice within us. It's at times like this that we must remember the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. David's sin had a future resolution. By hanging on the tree, Jesus paid for the death of Uriah. He paid for the death of Bathsheba. He he paid for the issues that that caused for Joab and for Nathan. Jesus would pay the price for David's sin. That future event allowed God to forgive David for his actions and cleanse him of his sin. In so doing, he would remove the stain of sin and restore joy to David so that he could return to that purpose for which he was created, to rejoice in the Lord and praise him always. Verses 10 and 11. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Now David knew that sin hardened his heart. If he had had any feeling whatsoever, he could have realized the error of his thoughts, the error of his actions and stopped things before they spiraled out of control and were put into action. His Personal desires overcame his sensibilities. They eroded his inherent sense of justice and what was right. In the cold light of day, when Nathan comes before David and reveals his sin to him, David, his actions, the results of what he has done come crashing into his world. He knew that his heart needed to be cleansed and renewed. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. 
David had let his guard down, and destruction was the result. Now, he's probably the greatest example that we see in the Old Testament of what a New Testament Christian looks like. Unlike others who had the Holy Spirit come upon them at particular times for particular tasks, David lived ever aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit with him. He valued it so much that he pleads here with God not to be banished from God's presence or that his Holy Spirit would be removed from him. Now we today have the same Holy Spirit living in us. The presence of God that David pleads not to be removed from him dwells in us. And I wonder, do we, like David did, allow sometimes our desires to rise up above this presence of God within us and choose the wrong course of action? Do we live conscious of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us over and above our circumstances? Verses 12 to 15. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach you your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. The joy of his salvation. You know, I remember vividly the time when I received the joy of his salvation. When I said yes to Jesus, who had pursued me for a long, long time. Saying yes to him, that sense of freedom that rushed in, that sense of hope that rushed in, that sense of love, that sense of purpose about my life. Suddenly, all I wanted to do was speak about him, was praise him, was sing songs of, of praise and worship to him. This holy God chose to come and live inside of me, this, this tent of skin. And I imagine that you can remember how that felt for you. But have we become blasé about what happened at that point of salvation for us? Has it for you lost its impact and its power? We need to revisit the joy that salvation brings. Perhaps you are mired deep in despair because of lockdown and can't see a return to normal life. Maybe you're struggling with your health. There's an issue around your finances. There's relationship issues or you feel completely alone. The joy of his salvation endures forever. And when we remember what God has done for us, that joy begins to rise within us. When we think back to that time and how it made us feel, it takes us back to that place and we can once again embrace the joy of his salvation. When we remember what he's done for us, the joy rises within us so that we too can sing of the forgiveness granted to us by our Heavenly Father, can praise the God of heaven and earth and restore our perspective. The battle ultimately belongs to the Lord and our lives, well, they're his too. And verse 17. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. I wonder if you've heard someone say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, I actually don't believe that that's a true statement. I believe that I was a sinner saved by grace. But the work of Jesus on the cross is so transformative that he's turned a sinner 
like me into a saint. I no longer have a sin nature. Sin is no longer my portion. Now, can I do wrong? Absolutely, yes, I can. But I've not lost my salvation. Jesus doesn't need to go back to the cross because I do something wrong today or tomorrow or next week or next year or in 10 years' time. Everything that I ever did wrong, he paid for once and for all at the cross. And I come across Christians sometimes who think that there's no hope for them because they've said yes to Jesus. He's forgiven them all of their past sins. And as soon as they do something wrong, they think, that's it. I've, I, I, I can't be saved. That's not true. We are saved. But we do need to come and confess. We do need to come before the Lord and expunge ourselves of that wrongdoing. Before I knew Jesus, I could do wrong and live with it quite happily. But now as a Christian, sin doesn't suit me anymore. It doesn't sit well with me. I can't, I can't do life with sin in it because it's too uncomfortable. It, it, it's not right. And my spirit knows it, my heart knows it, and my mind knows it. It eats away at me. The only relief I have is to come before the Lord in confession and receive his forgiveness and restoration, which swipes me clean again. It washes me whiter than snow. If we're downcast and sin conscious, the devil has our attention. When we live in freedom, however, freedom conscious, the Lord gets the man, gets the woman that he paid the highest price for, the death of his son, Jesus. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, and we get to praise the one who makes it possible. So in closing, some things to be thinking on over this week. Guard your heart. Don't let your circumstances define your outlook on life. Things might be tough for you right now, but guard your heart. Don't allow yourself to to become one who's critical of, of people or situations. Don't become one who sees only the negative. Every day there are reasons to get up and bless the Lord. Breath in our lungs, the ability to get out of bed, food on the table, Uh, drink to have, a a roof over our heads. There are many, many things to be thankful for. If we start our day by guarding our heart and giving thanks for the blessings that we have, our perspective is completely shifted. God is our Father. We need to live conscious of our God-given position on the earth. We're not just broken people. We're not that anymore. When we know him, We are sons and daughters of the King of Heaven. We co-rule and co-reign with Christ. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ. We pray from heaven to earth, not from earth to heaven to a distant God. We have a place in his house and we have a place in his family. God is our Father. Grant permission. Have those trusted people in your life. Have your Nathan that has permission to come to you and call out those things that they see in you which are not good. We can convince ourselves that what we're doing is okay, that we can control it, that we can handle it. We need to give authority. We need to grant permission to those trusted people to say, hey, you said this the other day and I think you were wrong. I saw that you did this. I noticed something that you didn't do that you should have done. Grant permission to those trusted people to call you out on those things. You also need to be someone who calls out another person on those things. We need accountability. Power groups are great for this. Allow people to speak into those areas of life where there are some grayness, where you need to be back on track with the Lord. Finally, give glory to God for the sacrifice 
of his son, for the beauty and enduring nature of his word, and for the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Now this morning, I pray that this message has spoken to you. If you don't know the Lord and you want to, then we would love to pray with you. If you have known the Lord and have walked away because of sin in your life, there's restoration for you. Just as there was for David, there's restoration for you. If you would like to pray with someone, then just jump online and hit the request prayer button and someone will pray with you and will lead you in a prayer that would help you give your life to the Lord. And when you do that, you will never feel the same. You'll never see things the same. You'll never be the same. You'll no longer be a sinner, but you will be transformed into a saint by God's enduring love for you. And if you've made a mistake, know that today you can go before the Lord, confess your sins. As 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We're made clean, whiter than snow and set on on that path once more. I pray God's blessing over you, over your families this week. Reach out to people, look out for one another, get in touch with people. As they come to mind, give them a call, arrange to go for a walk with them, whatever it might be. I pray God's blessing on your family and you this week. God bless. Uh, Again, our thanks, uh, Dave, for what you've prepared there and, uh, and shared with us today. Absolutely wonderful. Listen, for those of you who are listening, maybe this has raised uh, some, you know, some needs, perhaps to have other people stand with you in prayer. Please um, jump onto the website and uh, indicate, you know, through the uh, options that are there that you'd love someone to contact you and pray or to have some people praying for you. We'd love to do that. Uh, continue to just point you towards our Uh, podcast channels and also our website for um, a whole bunch more information about New Vine and uh, and messages that you can listen to from the past. Uh, Thanks. Have a great week. Keep keep bringing God into every moment 24-7. God bless.